Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Well, thank you very much uh, for your welcome. It's great to be here. Uh, If you've come in late, my name's David Williams. I lead the CMS Australia training ministry next door at St Andrews Hall. Uh, Thank you for putting up with all our noise all of last year, although probably you weren't here most of you. Um, The other thing you need to know about uh, me is that Rachel and I and our family served in Nairobi in Kenya uh, for nine years. The reason I'm mentioning that is because you need to know that for the sermon. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a living and a speaking God. And we pray that you would speak to each of us through your scriptures this morning. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the second half of the year 2003 was a pretty tumultuous time in the Anglican Church of Kenya. Uh, Following decisions that were made in the Episcopal Church in the United States, uh, the Kenya Anglican Church made the decision to refuse financial support from the Episcopal Church and started shutting down ministries that were funded uh, with money that they felt they could no longer accept as the church in the United States moved away from Orthodox Christianity. And one of the ministries that they started shutting down was the National uh, Theological Education by Extension Program or TEE ministry. I felt that that ministry was really too important to lose. At the time I was principal of an Anglican mission uh, training college and I made the offer to take over the running of the national TEE program and we would try and absorb the costs. Now, the grant that was being refused was 70,000 US dollars. So this was a very high risk proposition. I had no idea where I was gonna get the money from to try and keep this program alive. While I was scratching my head about that, I received an email from Australia. It said that a Christian couple were downsizing their property and they wanted to give considerable resources to support mission might our ministry um, have the possibility of using a sizable gift? Wow. Now, let's imagine the conversation that those Australians had with their financial advisor. Great, says the financial advisor. Downsizing your property now is a really smart move. It's fully paid off. You don't need such a big place. I'd suggest that you invest in a mix of Australian and international equities with a balanced risk portfolio. To which they reply, well, we're not worried about risk portfolios or risk profiles. We just want to give our money away and we're thinking of a Bible college. Now you can imagine the financial advisor going back to his or her office offloading to colleagues, you know, you just can't help some people, can you? You know, you give them good advice and they just go and give their money away. I mean, honestly, some people don't have the faintest idea about investing. Now, actually, that's not true, is it? Those dear people understand quite a lot about investing. They understand that they can't serve God and money. They understand what it means to be faithful with worldly wealth. And they understand that relationships 
lie at the heart of a true investment strategy. In fact, they understand the message of Luke 16 and the parable of the shrewd manager. Now, the parable of the shrewd manager follows straight on from the story of the prodigal son, and there are lots of similarities between them. They both involve a foolish person wasting someone else's money. They both involve uh, stories about grace in the face of rebellion. And both stories are speaking to grumbling Pharisees who are complaining that Jesus welcomes sinners and even eats with them. So let's unpack this parable. First of all, verses one and two, I've called this section cooking the books. So the story begins with a scenario that has lots of similarities with the prodigal son. Just as the son shames his father, so the manager has shamed his master. This manager has been wasting his boss's possessions to such an extent that everyone in the village is talking about it. The whole community knows what's going on. The master, the rich man, is looking like a bit of an idiot. He has been humiliated. So he calls the manager in and confronts him. Uh, did you notice that there is no doubt in the story about the manager's guilt? He doesn't bother to try and dispute the charges that have been laid against him because everyone knows what's been going on. This is a fully justified summary dismissal. Now, you all know what that looks like at KPMG or Deloitte's, right? Summary dismissal looks like your belongings in a cardboard box, you're marched out of the building by two burly security guards and dumped on the pavement. Severance is brutal. But isn't it striking that that isn't what happens here? And noticing that that isn't what happens here, I think, is the crux of the story. This manage, manager warrants that treatment, but the boss gives him breathing space to turn over the books of accounts. So this is like you discovering that your accountant has been cheating you and then giving your accountant 24 hours before they have to hand over the book of accounts. So what is the rich man up to here? Is he being stupid or incompetent? Well, I'm sure we're meant to understand that the rich man is being neither weak nor stupid nor incompetent. Rather, he is being gracious. The character of the master is holding together justice and mercy. Because he's just, he holds the dishonest manager to account. Because he's merciful, he allows the man a moment of grace. And that grace, that mercy, becomes critical in the next section, verses 3 to 8, banking on mercy. So the shrewd manager's in a mess. He's facing destitution. There's no job seeker, no job keeper. So he weighs up his options. Manual labor, but he knows that he wouldn't last a day out in the fields. The only alternative to that is a life of begging. This would be wouldn't it, the ultimate humiliation. He would go from sitting proudly in an office to sitting broken in the gutter. So verse four, 
his brainwave. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from my management, people may receive me into their houses. Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? 100 measures of oil, he said to him, quick, take your bill and make it 50. Now it's important to understand what the shrewd manager's strategy is here. He's not altering the book of accounts so that he profits financially. He's not saying you slip me a bribe and I'll change your bill. He's reducing everyone's bill with no immediate financial benefit to himself. You see, what he's banking on is not financial capital, but social capital. What he's doing is creating a whole network of relationships around his village so that everyone is gonna absolutely love this guy. He is gonna be everyone's best friend, and when he loses his job, he won't be reduced to begging because everyone will welcome him into their homes. And it's a brilliant strategy because it's depending on the character of the boss, of the rich man in the story. See, for that strategy to work, the shrewd manager is assuming that his master will overlook the way all the debts have been downsized. But that's a pretty safe assumption because the master has already demonstrated exactly that attitude to the manager. He hasn't marched him straight off the pro property. So the manager is banking on the rich man's mercy and staking his whole future on it. Essentially what he's saying is, the master's been merciful about my wrongdoing, so he's bound to be merciful with you with the debt you owe him. So, let's change the bill. Now, one of the big things that's going on in this story relates to a cultural assumption. And the big cultural assumption in this parable is that money and friendship completely overlap. Now, in many Anglo or Western cultures, we don't share that assumption. You've probably heard people say, oh, I don't do business with friends, as though that's a sort of point of transparency and integrity. In most of the world, that's just weird. <laughs> There's a Western cultural value about keeping money and friendship separate. If you're Anglo, how often have you been asked for money by a friend? Probably very rarely. But in many cultures around the world, money and friendship absolutely overlap. When I started working as principal of the Bible College in Kenya, I discovered that nearly all the staff owed the college money. And I made an Anglo-Western assumption that that was a bad thing and that I should try and get everyone out of debt. So the way it worked was that people would borrow, say, $500 from the college against their payroll, paid back at $50 a month over 10 months. And I just thought that was a problem. I thought it was a problem that people were in debt to the college. Um, I mean, I, there was quite a lot of cash out there that would have been quite useful, but I just assumed that you wouldn't want to be in debt. So I started working to try and get people out of debt, and guess what happened? Every time we got close to clearing someone's debt, the staff member would more and more insistently request 
a new loan. And the reason for that was because in their minds, we were in a patron-client relationship and having a debt strengthened the relationship. And so they made the culturally accurate assumption that if I was clearing the debt, I must be getting ready to sack them or that I didn't trust them or didn't value them. So their interpretation of the debt was about a relational obligational. It was a understood in relational terms. And it's that patron-client relationship that sits at the heart of this parable. And what the shrewd manager is doing is strengthening the relationship between the master and his debtors by extending the master's grace to them. As he does that, very shrewdly, he is strengthening his own network of relationships in the community so that he won't go hungry. All the same, as Jesus makes clear, he is not a son of the light in verse 8. He's a son of this world. Jesus makes that distinction very clear. So to help us with the application, the Lord Jesus spells it out for us in verses 9 to 13. And I've called this section Investing in Eternity. So I think the starting point as we apply this parable to ourselves is to focus on the central theme of the narrative, which is the character of the boss, of the rich man. The shrewd manager's taking a huge risk. We might call it a step of faith. His step of faith is to stake everything on the character of the master. His only chance is his boss's mercy and grace. Now remember that this parable is told in the context of the grumbling Pharisees at the start of chapter 15. This man, Jesus, receives sinners and even eats with them. And the grumbling Pharisees reoccur in verse 14 of chapter 16 at the end of this section. So there's one, I think, central application from the parable of the shrewd manager, which is simply that true faith, saving faith, stakes everything on the character of a merciful and gracious God. But Jesus takes that central obvious application and links it specifically to the issue of money. And the reason money is so important is because it's love of money that is blinding the hearts of the Pharisees. So saving faith is faith in the master and his character, but you can't serve that master if you're in love with money. So how do I tell? How do I tell if I'm serving God as my master and not money? And that's unpacked for us in verses 9 to 12. And actually, it's the shrewd manager who teaches us what that looks like. You see, what the shrewd manager does is to take his boss's resources and invest them in relationships. And that is the core lesson, I think, from this parable. 
take the master's material resources and invest them into relationships. Verse nine, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may re receive you into eternal dwellings. So the friends that we are investing in, that we're making friends with, are those who will be with us in eternal dwellings. So clearly these must be gospel relationships if they're relationships that will have that eternal component to them. So I think Jesus is asking each of us, what is your investment strategy? Is my investment strategy a mortgage-free house and a pension fund? Or is my investment strategy gospel relationships? Because where I'm investing tells me which God I'm serving. So if I think money is my money, and if my main purpose is to use my money to invest in the house and the pension fund, well, I'm serving money. But if I think it's God's money, and my main purpose in using God's money is to invest in gospel relationships, well, then I'm serving God. That's the point of verse 11 and 12, a reminder that everything we have belongs to God anyway. It's not my money. I'm just a steward, just like the steward in this story. And if I'm to be a faithful steward of God's resources, I must invest those resources into the things that he cares about, which is gospel relationships. So remember my story at the beginning, the Australian couple who downsized their house and rescued the whole national TEE program for the Anglican Church in Kenya. Well, according to the parable of the shrewd manager, that couple have a welcoming committee waiting for them in heaven. When they arrive in the new creation, there will be a bunch of Kenyans eagerly looking out for them, saying, hey, Sante Sana, Sante Sana, thank you for your generosity. It enabled our pastor to get trained and through his ministry, we came to know Jesus. Your money made a difference to us. And the Aussies will say, no, 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 no. It was never our money, always the masters. Now, if you support mission or ministry, that is your privilege too. There will be people waiting to welcome you into heaven thankful for your investment into their lives. And I'm sure for all of us too, we will be waiting, looking out for those who've invested into our lives and equipped and enabled us to serve the Lord Jesus in gospel relationships. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this rich and beautiful parable of the shrewd manager. 
Uh, thank you for his example to us of staking everything on your character and your mercy and then investing into gospel relationships. Uh, we pray that you would write this lesson into our hearts and minds and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.